If you have your copy of the Word of God this morning, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. The book of Hebrews chapter 9. This morning uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 of the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 1 through 14. We've titled this message, Purify Our Conscience. This morning, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and earthly place and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared at the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly in the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place places is not yet open, opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot be perfect, or that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. A few weeks ago, I asked the question, what do we do with our guilt? What do we do with our guilt? And if we are honest, there are times that people seem to be oblivious. And if we ask them what they did with their guilt... I'm sure perhaps they would respond that they don't have any. One only has to watch the news or any other show on TV, it seems, to see how often people will boast about their sinful lifestyle. Often we're told just to feel good about who you are or own who you are and everything will then be okay. We even see this in Christians who have fallen into sin. They will often take every opportunity they can to talk about how 
other Christians were judgmental of them and just could not accept them for who they were. Here's what I've found. Even though people will often not want to recognize their guilt, and even though they will lie and say they don't have any guilt, no matter how hard they try to suppress it, they just can't. The reason anyone ever feels guilty is very simply because we are guilty. The Bible tells us that every single person is guilty before a holy God. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it makes it quite clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we are guilty, it's not just about feeling bad for something that we've done, but it is the fact that we are morally corrupt and that we are separated from God and we are under His just penalty for our sin, which is His wrath being poured out on us in eternal punishment in the lake of fire. So what are we to do with our guilt? Imagine if the Bible just ended with us being guilty, but there was no solution to our guilt. There was no remedy. There was no way to be made pure. God's Word declares that there is a remedy for our guilt. And as we've said over and over again, these Hebrew Christians were facing temptation to leave the faith and return to Judaism. The author is showing them that this would be a grave error and the Old Covenant is inferior to the New Covenant which was instituted by Christ. The Levitical priests were sinful and mere men. Jesus, on the other hand, was sinless and a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now the author goes into some detail concerning the sacrificial system to reveal to the people that it is imperfect and it is temporary it can't purify our conscience and it will not remove our guilt and the whole design of the old covenant system was a foreshadowing of what was to come which was jesus christ as a superior high priest who offered his own blood to obtain eternal redemption and purify our conscience how does God purify our conscience and deal with our guilt with the blood of Jesus Christ? And so this morning, I'm going to break this down into three main parts for us. First, we will see the inadequacy of the Old Covenant. The inadequacy of the Old Covenant. Second, we will see the accomplishments of Christ's sacrifice. And third, we will see why Christ redeems us. I know your notes say God, but it should say Christ. So if you want to scratch that out or just write Christ above it, don't scratch God out. That might seem weird. So just write. But uh, why Christ redeems us. First, the inadequacy of the Old Covenant. The author takes 10 verses to give a description of the earthly tabernacle and what goes on in the tabernacle. And we probably read it and we think, well, what in the world? What does that have to do with me today? We, we have computers and we have cell phones and we have televisions and we have televisions on our cell phone and that sort of thing. And we read this and we, we can't even begin to really fully understand it because this is not the world that we live in today. I was watching the news, uh, 
recently, and uh, it's it's kind of depressing sometimes to watch the news, by the way, but I was watching, and they were talking about areas in the United States um, that, that you don't even recognize are in the U.S. because they look like third world countries. That's how bad it is. And and that's kind of like this passage of Scripture. We read it, and we don't relate to it because that's just not the world we live in. We don't recognize it. We have difficulty understanding it. This is culturally foreign to us, and it appears strange. So we either um, we either look at it and we think it can't be relevant to us today because it's so weird and alien, or we think that there that maybe there's some truth buried in it for us to use. Perhaps we search for a truth um, in this old way of doing things that we can apply for our, to our lives today, or we realize that God is sovereign over all of history. And that as we read this, yes, there are truths that we do apply to our lives, but biblical history is a pointing to Christ. There are points in history where we see God show up and do amazing things. And the point is not so that we would find some truth and that we can apply that truth to our lives, but that we would be a part of what God is doing in that historical context, and that history would be real to us. And so with that said, let's break these first ten verses down into two key areas. First, the tabernacle is a foreshadow of Christ. The tabernacle is a foreshadow of Christ. And then we'll see the ministry of the priest is a foreshadow of the work of Christ. First, the tabernacle is a foreshadow of Christ. So we have all these details laid out for us concerning the tabernacle. There are about 50 chapters of the Bible which are about the tabernacle. It's safe to say that the tabernacle was a big deal. It was the center of the Jewish worship under the Old Covenant. The tabernacle was a portable tent that was always situated at the heart of Israel. All the tribes would camp around the tabernacle in an orderly formation. The point the author is making is that it was temporary. As we looked at last week, the design of the tabernacle was revealed to Moses by God in great detail. The whole thing was a foreshadow of Christ. For whatever reason, the author does not give a description of the courtyard where there was a bronze altar set up for burnt offerings. And this, by the way, was as far as any layman could ever go, was the courtyard. And it was where they would lay their hands on the head of the animal for their sin offering. However, the focus here is on the tabernacle itself, and the author is comparing the tabernacle with the true tabernacle, which is in heaven, where Jesus entered into the very presence of God. There is some detail given, but not a lot of detail concerning the tabernacle. He talks about the outer section, which is called the holy place, which was about 30 feet long and 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. And then you had another section, which was the inner section, and it's known as the holy of holies or the most holy place, and it was 15 feet cubed. And as a priest entered on his left would be a solid gold lampstand with seven branches to it, and it would be filled with pure olive oil. And on the right of the priest would be a table that held the twelve loaves of sacred bread. And as you moved further in and right in the center, just before the veil, you would have 
the altar of incense, which divided the holy place from the holy of holies. Now I'm going to pause right there because if you are following me, you would know that that's not what this says. Actually, if you if you follow the if you're a detailed person, you would know that what I just said is not what the text says. And uh, so uh, it says the altar of incense is actually in the most holy place. And that's puzzled a lot of scholars because, as I said, the golden altar of incense and the rest of the scriptures is not inside the Holy of Holies, but it's in the outer room. And some uh, say, well, the author of Hebrews was mistaken. Like he he made a mistake. And I think that's just silly and crazy. Every Jew would have known the necessary arrangement of the furniture during this time. I believe the best explanation is given to us by Leon Morris, who says the author has in mind the intimate connection of the incense altar with the most holy place. And so it belonged in the inner sanctuary, as is shown by its situation in the front of the curtain that is right before you enter into the holy of holies. That is before the Ark of the Covenant, before the atonement covers the mercy seat. That is over the testimony. Inside of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. It measured about 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant was a golden jar of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. The covering of the Ark was the mercy seat, or in the Greek, the place of propitiation. Above the mercy seat, looking down, were two cherubim of glory. They were called this because the glory of God's presence was manifested there. And the high priest would enter in and sprinkle the blood from the sacrifices on the mercy seat. And now, as we read this, there is no explanation given to explain the symbolism of any of these items. Instead, the author goes about making his point that these things are temporary and they ultimately looked ahead to Christ. But how do these items look ahead to Christ? Well, let's see real quick this morning. First, we have the lampstand and the table of bread. The lampstand of pure gold speaks of the divine Son who left the glory of heaven to become the light of the world and to make his people shine in a dark world as light. The table of bread is an anticipation of the work of Christ who said, I am the bread of life. He is the true spiritual sustenance and without him there is no life. And then we have the altar of incense which speaks of the prayers offered by Christ as our high priest in the presence of God. And then you have the Ark of the Covenant which was symbolic of the very presence of God. And the golden jar of manna again speaks of Christ as the bread of life. And Aaron's rod which budded shows Christ who is the branch who is chosen above all others because he alone Gives life. And then you have the tablets of stone, which revealed God's holy standard, and the mercy seat where the blood of the atonement would be sprinkled was a representation of Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 tells us that Christ was displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, We are told that he is the propitiation for our sins. The point is. That the tabernacle and everything in the tabernacle was a foreshadow of Christ. The old covenant is inadequate because it's all a foreshadowing of what is yet to come. The whole point is this is all about Jesus Christ. Now, let's see that the ministry of the priest is a foreshadow of the work of Christ. We see this in verses 6 through 10. 
In verse 6, the passage shifts from a focus on the arrangement of the furniture in the tabernacle to the ministry of the priest in the tabernacle. And as the author makes the switch, he outlines the stipulations for the priests and the holy places and the deficiencies in their work because, again, their ministry was a foreshadow of the work of Christ. If we look specifically at verse 7, we see a focus on the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. And then it was only once a year, which was the Day of Atonement. This is played out for us in Leviticus chapter 16. The high priest would first offer a bull for his own sins. And then he would enter into the Holy of Holies. And he would sprinkle the blood from that bull on the mercy seat and in front of it. And then he would go back out and there would be two goats. And he would slaughter one of them, which was a sin offering for the people. And he would take the blood of that slaughtered goat to the mercy seat. And then he would go back out and he would lay his hands on the other living goat. And he would confess the sins of the people as he laid his hands on that living goat, and they would be led, that goat would be led into the wilderness and let go. That goat was known as the scapegoat, and where we get that term scapegoat. The author brings our attention to the fact that the old system provided a way for the people to, to experience forgiveness for the unintentional sins of the people. The law made it clear that there was no sacrifice for those who committed premeditated sin towards God. Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 and 31. Now some people would say, well, isn't all sin done in premeditation towards God? Yes, that would be true, but the idea was more of a reference to blasphemous behavior and treason towards God in such a way as to exalt oneself up and over and above God. This does have a direct correlation to the book of Hebrews, where the author has continued to give warnings and will again, in chapter 10, give this strong warning against apostasy. And the point is, there is no sacrifice for this type of sin. The old way had limitations. Only sin of ignorance could be forgiven. Now I need to, I need to park here for just a minute. Because I don't want us just to gloss over these verses. That is speaking to us profoundly about the Day of Atonement and the work of Jesus Christ. You see, the Day of Atonement told the people a lot about God and a lot about themselves. It was a revelation every single year about the holiness of God, and it reiterated the fact that no one could enter God's holy presence unless there was some sort of acceptable blood sacrifice in order for them to enter God's presence. And it also revealed that there must be some sort of mediator for anyone to even approach God. And in this case, the mediator was the high priest. Right? You take the animal and the high priest would come out and get the animal and if the proper sacrifice was administered, God's wrath would be satisfied and their sins not be judged, at least for now. But the old system revealed two glaring problems. First, the first problem of the old system was it granted only limited access. No common people could ever enter the Holy of Holies. And not even every high priest or not even every priest could enter. And so as a commoner, you couldn't enter the Holy of Holies. You could only go into the courtyard. You were not allowed in there. 
As a lay person, you could enter into the court, courtyard and that was it. Only the high priest could ever enter the Holy of Holies. And then, only once a year. And it was only for a brief amount of time. And even then, it was a tense time because if he messed up one thing, it could be his last trip ever into the sanctuary. Now look at verse 8 in the beginning of verse 9. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. So he's saying that as long as the holy places are blocked off by the curtain, as long as they're still there, no one has access. Ordinary priests could not enter the Holy of Holies, and ordinary people could not even enter the holy place. Then he says, this is symbolic of the present age. The point being, as long as it continues to stand, then it stands between the worshiper and God. And there is no hope of immediate access to God. And to be clear, it still stood when the author is writing this to the people. They could still go and look at at the thing standing and, and understand that this is how we've always done our religion. And he says, if it still stands, you don't even have immediate access to God. Even though the veil was torn in two at the death of Christ, at this point, the division still existed. The point is crystal clear. Under the old covenant, there is no direct access to God, period. But praise be to God that Jesus has given us access forever. You and I have direct access to God. But there was a second glaring problem. With the Old Covenant, it had limited efficacy. It had limited efficacy. In other words, its effects were limited. Yes, there is a heavy curtain. But that was only symbolic of the real problem. The problem is not external. The real barriers are not physical. But it is within the hearts and the minds of the people. Look at what he says. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are, are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. This is not saying that the Old Testament saints never had a clear conscience conscience the old covenant did all that it could possibly do but all the sacrifices and all of the gifts could not ease a man's conscience why why couldn't this ease a man's conscience why why couldn't anyone's conscience be eased he answers in verse 10 because those were external regulations for the body so the implication is all of this external stuff that was done under the old covenant did nothing to deal with the guilt of sin. It did not ease the conscience. And then look, he introduces a unit of time. These regulations were imposed until the time of Reformation, he says. So these sacrifices had to be done over and over and over again, repeatedly, annually, to try to deal with 
our conscience and guilt and it would put the guilt off for another year. And, oh, my guilt's gone for another year. But what happens when I go right back out and I sin again and then eventually i got to come and and put the guilt off again and then I go out and sin again and then i got to come and put the guilt off again then I go out and sin again. It was a never-ending cycle. Over and over again. And it was a foreshadowing of Christ because this continued until the time of Reformation. What Reformation? The Protestant Reformation? I mean, what does he mean, the time of, time of Reformation? What is this Reformation? So we've been tracing through the book of Hebrews, focus on the superiority of Jesus Christ, when Christ came into the world and, and lived the perfect sacrifice, perfect life, and died the perfect death, and the old way of doing things was over. And the beginning of the Reformation took place when Christ replaced the high priest and the temple sacrifice and all the rituals. And that is the point. That is the point. He is superior. That is why the author is writing the book of Hebrews in the first place. It's not to say the Old Covenant is bad, but to say that God in His sovereign design made the Old Covenant inadequate. He did it on purpose so that it would point ahead to Jesus Christ. The whole point that the author is making is saying, look at this old way of doing things. The whole point of this old way of doing things is to reveal to you the coming of Jesus Christ. He's saying, listen, it is all about Jesus. That's his point. It's all about Jesus. Which leads to point Number two, the accomplishment of Christ's sacrifice. The accomplishment of Christ's sacrifice. So we've seen the Old Covenant gave limited access and limited efficacy to the average Joe like you and I. And we had, those of us had major problems. If we wanted to somehow get access to the presence of God, or if we ever wanted a clear conscience, we wouldn't be able to have it. And so the question is, what then was accomplished by Christ's sacrifice? Well, I submit that if the Old Covenant was limited access and limited efficacy, then His blood offers unlimited access and unlimited efficacy. So first, unlimited access to the Holy of Holies. Look at verse 11. The very first word, right? At least in my Bible, the very first word of verse 11. It's a word of contrast. So the first ten verses were this discussion on the tabernacle in the Old Covenant and how it could never give anyone a clean conscience. How it could never deal with your guilt. You're never going to have a clean conscience. But Christ. Right? That's it. But Christ. But when Christ. Christ what? Appeared. But when Christ appeared, the new plan is now visible. Here's the old plan. This is the old way of doing things. But now the new plan is visible. And what did he appear as? As a high priest of good things that have come and, and 
through the greater and more perfect tent not made with human hands. Jesus did not just go into the human made tabernacle and perform the ritual that all the other high priests performed until next year when he'd have to perform the ritual again. Instead, he went into heaven itself of which the, the earthly tabernacle was a mere foreshadowing of and he went by his own blood. Furthermore, Christ did not enter. He didn't go in there with the blood of goats and calves like verse 12 says, but rather he goes by his own blood. Now, to be clear, this is not a picture of Jesus walking into the heavenly tabernacle sprinkling his earthly blood on the mercy seat, but instead he entered through the greater tabernacle and he entered once and for all. This is not a repeated process. Our redemption was secured on the cross of Calvary and the author wants the complete and finality and the supremacy of the blood of Christ to be clear. It's once and for all. It is through His death that our conscience is clear. It is through His death that our guilt is taken care of for all eternity. Church, listen to me carefully. The penalty has been paid. There is absolutely nothing that you can do in your life that will add to what Christ has already done. Nothing. You say, well, what? But pastor, what about that sin I committed five years ago? Paid for. Pastor, what about that sin I committed last week? Paid for. What about that sin that I committed on the way here? Paid for. What about that sin that you're going to commit tomorrow? Paid for. What about that sin you're going to commit 10, 20, 30 years from now? Paid for. This is what once and for all means. It's all been paid for. He died for it all. If He did not, then you and I would have no access to God. That's the whole point. The only reason we have access to God is because His sacrifice has completely and utterly covered every single sin that you committed or going to commit. It's all been paid for. But through the blood, you and I have unlimited access because God the Father doesn't look down and see sin stain Josh Monda. He sees Christ's blood stained saint. He sees me as a saint. He sees the blood of his own son covering my sin. So we have unlimited access to the Holy of Holies and Christ's blood accomplishes it and we have unlimited Efficacy. Its effects are unlimited. The author gives a reiteration of the limited nature of the old system. The blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh. The limited efficacy of the old covenant could make 
one ceremonial clean as well as atone for sins of ignorance, which is why the whole red heifer ritual is mentioned. Numbers 19, 1 through 13 is where we find out about that. This was used as if someone had been defiled by touching a dead body. The point the author is making, what he's doing is he's making an argument from lesser to greater. If these rituals could cleanse the flesh, then he says, how much more will the blood of Christ who through eternal or through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus is the only one that can atone for man's sin because Jesus alone is a man that had no blemish at all. Therefore, his blood can act as a substitute for the penalty that we desperately deserve. Now pay close attention to verse 14. Because look at what it says. It says, we have the blood of Christ, God the Son, who through the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, God the Father. We have the entire Trinity represented in verse 14. The result is that all the sins of all the people, both Old and New Covenant, were covered by the blood of Jesus. The animal sacrifice foreshadowed the final sacrifice of God's Son. And the death of God's Son reached back and covered all the sins of God's people for all time. And it reaches forward to cover all of the sins of God's people in a new time. The efficacy of the blood of Christ does what the blood of bulls and goats could never do. It's unlimited. And through it, we can have a clean conscience. So here we are. In this time where we have everything that we could possibly have. We have the cell phones and the computers and the Wi-Fi and space travel and instant replay and all these crazy things. We stay up late. Look at our computers, and some people stay up late and they're addicted to work and video games and pornography. And at the end of it all, what do we do with our conscience? We have everything that we could ever want, but what do I do with my conscience? What do I do with my guilt? How do I come to God when I feel so dirty? How do I look at my wife and children in the eyes with secret sin in my life that I have in my conscience? What do I do when my conscience is so defiled? Pick your poison. Our conscience is messed up, church. What keeps us from God is our conscience screaming at us over and over again. You are guilty. But glory be to God, the problem is solved. Our conscience condemns us. Our conscience makes us feel like there is no way that we can be acceptable to God. And we are faced with this absolute truth that we are not good enough to come to God. So what do we do? Well, we try all kinds of things to clear our conscience. We cut ourselves and we give money to charity and we help the poor and the destitute maybe once or twice or three times a year. And we do all kinds of things to pay penance for our conscience. 
But the result is always the same. We are guilty and our conscience is defiled and we can do all kinds of things, but it will never clear our conscience. And I don't mean externally because we have touched something dirty, but our conscience is defiled internally. Jesus said it's what comes out of a man that defiles him, not what goes in. He's saying what is internal is what defiles you. Our conscience is defiled by our pride and by our bitterness and by our greed and by our lust and by our envy and by our jealousy and by our covetousness and by our apathy and by our unbelief and by our fear. Our conscience is defiled, as verse 14 calls it, by dead works. Why? Because you can do all this stuff and it does nothing for your conscience. It's dead. There is no spiritual life in any of it. We don't do these things because we're followers of Christ. They come because we are trying to have a clean conscience and they come from death and they will lead to death. We are hopeless. And what makes it even worse is that we can't even depend on our conscience as an infallible guide. Why? Because as I just said, we defile it, but it can also be seared according to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. We see people with a seared conscience all the time, right? We see mass murderers and child molesters and people that commit crazy acts without, without it even bothering them. Because they've seared their conscience. And so our conscience must be informed by Scripture. And as we learn more about who God is and what His holy standards are, our conscience begins to accuse us of how sinful we are. Have you ever seen someone that, that, you know, they used to go to church and they would go and they would start to struggle and soon they quit going to church? You know why? Their conscience. Because the more they know about Christ as Savior, the more they learn, the more their conscience begins to convict them. We're all stranded and condemned by our conscience. None of us love God with our entire being. None of us truly love others as ourselves. This is how God's law works on our conscience. And we see that there is nothing that we can do to justify ourselves, to make ourselves right before God. And we see that we truly stand guilty before God. Is there any hope? What will we do with all of our guilt? How can our guilt be removed? How can our conscience be purified after all? The title of the sermon is Purify Your Conscience. So how can this happen? And the only way for it to happen is through the sacrifice of an acceptable substitute. And that's the whole point that the author of Hebrews is making. We did all that stuff. That's the old covenant. And it wouldn't cleanse our conscience. It wouldn't purify our conscience. But Christ. He's that substitute. It's the whole point of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ offered, also suffered once for sins. The righteous Jesus Christ for the unrighteous, me, that he might bring us to God. Paul says in Romans 3, 24 and 25, being justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ redeems us, whom God 
put forward as a propitiation or as a payment by the blood to be received by faith. Listen, you can work as hard as you want to work, but you will never pay for your sin through penance. Your guilt will never be removed by good works. Our guilt can only be removed by God's free gift through the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, well, how do I get that gift? Through faith. The answer in every age and for everyone for guilty conscience is the blood of Jesus. When our conscience condemns us, where can we turn? Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the only thing in this world that can cleanse us from our sin and give us peace and give us a pure conscience. Now, there are some who might say, well, if salvation is by God's grace alone, apart from anything, then I can do whatever I want. And won't people take advantage of God's grace and use it as an excuse to live in sin? So we hear that often, you know, or don't judge me because God's grace covers my sin so I can do whatever I want. Well, Paul deals with that in Romans chapter six. But the author, I believe, also deals with it here real briefly in verse 14, which leads us to our third point. Why Christ redeems. Why Christ redeems. Can I be real with you? There are Christians who serve God in an attempt to deal with their guilty conscience. And I don't mean like, you know, like we recruited them for VBS by laying a guilt trip on them. I'm just saying that there are Christians that feel guilty and they think that their service to God is somehow going to make their standing with God better. The blood of Christ does that. That's it. You can't add to it. You serve if you serve as a Christian because you love God. Not to pay anything back. You serve because I love God so much and He has done so much for me. I love Him so much, I want to serve. I want to look for opportunities to serve. I'm going to make opportunities to serve. That's how much I love God. That's why we serve. Not to pay for it. But there are Christians who serve to deal with their guilty conscience. To somehow earn God's forgiveness. And that if that's your motive for service, then it's the wrong motive. But there's also a flip side to that. Some Christians think that the reason God forgives is so we can feel good about ourselves. And so their focus is on self and not God or others. Listen, we hear this preach all the time that God just wants you to feel better about who you are or feel good about yourself, etc. But here is the proper focus. God has forgiven me by His grace, which means we have not earned that forgiveness. We don't deserve that forgiveness. No matter who we think we are, we don't deserve it. None of us deserve God's forgiveness. His grace is through the precious blood of His Son, which makes me free to serve Him. Because I am forgiven, I am free to serve Him. You heard me right. It makes you free to serve Him. Why does Christ redeem us? 
to free us to serve Him. Look what it says. If we've not trusted in the blood of Christ, we have dead works. Now stop and think about that for a moment. What does that even mean? Dead works. Why are they dead works? Well, if we've not trusted in the blood of Christ, then we are dead in our sins. We're separated from the life of God, and therefore anything that we produce is dead. If we have no way of serving God, sure, we can do good things, and we can feel better about ourselves for a time. That's not done in service of God, but it's done in service of self. They are also dead works because they are unproductive. They can't bring spiritual life to anyone because they come from a person who is spiritually dead. They are also dead because their end is death. What that means is someone does these works in the hope of earning favor with God and eternal life. But if we could earn eternal life, then the death of Jesus Christ would be pointless. There is no amount of good works that can save us. You see, before Christ, everything that we did was a dead work. It may have produced some sort of temporary thing here on earth, but it's a dead work. But after we've been born again, we go from dead works to serving the living God. What does God's Word say? Well, it tells us that we present ourselves, right, as a living sacrifice. I found it's much more difficult to be a living sacrifice than a dead one. What I mean by that is this. There are many people who are probably willing to die for their faith. They really are. But I think there are fewer people that are willing to live for it. And all we got to do is look around. We see it. Many people are willing to die for their faith. But there's few that are willing to live for it. Jesus gave himself for us. But we're not willing to give ourselves. For him. Every fiber of our being should be crying out to give him glory. Every fiber. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink, very common things, right? Eating and drinking. Or whatever you do, just in case eating and drinking didn't cover it. Or whatever you do. So eating, drinking, or anything else you do. What's it say? Do it all for the glory of yourself. No. Do it all for the glory of God. We are called to be living sacrifices and in everything we do should scream the glory of God. Our service to God should be living. It should be alive. It shouldn't be dead. We shouldn't have 
dead singing and dead praying and dead preaching and dead studying and dead hearing and dead giving and dead teaching and everything about our service should scream, we are alive and our faith is living because we serve a living God. We are excited about our living God. Some of the problem with Christianity is not that it is not relevant, but it's that it's growing stale and dead to the outside world. And it's not because you and I serve a dead God. It is because instead of recognizing that you and I serve a living God and being excited about the fact that our God is alive, we've done all that we can to kill Christianity. And we've caused it to become impotent to a lost and dying world because we've stopped preaching the Word of God and we've coddled the minds of men and we said, oh, well, you know, maybe we'll give on that and we'll give on this and we'll do this and we'll do this to try to appease man instead of saying, we serve a living God and it's going to be evident in our preaching, in our singing, in our praying and in everything that we do. May God be glorified because He is alive today. Church, we got to stop pretending like our God is dead and know that we serve a living God and every part of us should show that Christ redeems us and he frees us in order to serve him so that our daily lives will be an act of worship and praise to God. Well, I'm all out of time. So let me close with this. Please understand that under the old covenant, The ordinary layman could never approach God even though he foreshadowed or even though it foreshadowed Christ. God was distant. He was distant. Isaac Watt wrote this. Now all the blood of beasts on Jewish altar slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Jesus, our eternal high priest, had made atonement He's purified our conscience. In fact, He is the only way our conscience can be pure. Have you experienced that this morning? If not, then you stand before God as guilty. And you stand in jeopardy of the judgment of God. I would plead with you this morning, place your trust in Christ today. And if you have done that, then your conscience is pure and you are fit to serve God. And I would plead with you this morning, dear follower of Christ, that it would be evident that you serve a living God because your service to Him is full of life and all about His glory. Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much.